Welcome to the Global Investor Podcast, a show that focuses on helping foreign investors enter the lucrative U.S. real estate market. Host Charles Carrillo combines decades of real estate investing experience with a professional background in international banking to interview experts in all areas of U.S. real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Charles Carrillo. Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Crillo. Today, we have Scott Choppin. Scott is a CEO and founder of Urban Pacific Group of Companies, a Long Beach, California-based real estate development company founded in 2000 that focuses exclusively on workforce rental housing communities throughout California and the winter Western U.S. So thank you so much for being on the show, Scott. Great to be here, Charles. Appreciate the invite. Yeah, no, it's great. It's great to have uh, people in all different walks of the real estate life and coming here to share their story. So uh, can we start with a little bit of background on yourself prior to starting in real estate investing? Um, yeah, so I've actually been a real estate developer my entire professional career. Okay. Um, I never did anything else and happily so. I uh, love what I do. Um, I have a, you know, part of the reason that that was my career choice, I, I have a family background and real estate development. So my dad, Carrie, and my uncle, Mike, were both real estate developers in their own right. And so I got to grow up around the business of real estate development, which, which was good. It was good background building. And then I had a couple of, you know, key events in my younger years that really solidified that, you know, like that choice of being a real estate developer. Um, one was uh, for a couple of years after I graduated high school, I worked in the construction trades actually working, building new apartments, you know, on the, on the construction side. Um, that taught me two things. One is I didn't want to do physical labor for the rest <laughs> of my life. And two is I got to see, you know, the developer, quote unquote, guy in the wild, right? Like he, you know, the developer for these projects I worked on would show up and like, I recognized who that person was, right? And I like, I wanted to be that guy. And then the other one was, uh, I'm, I'm like a heavy reader. I, I still am, always have been, and at 18 years old, I read a series of, you know, real estate investing books, so like the old school, you know, 50s era, you know, invest in real estate on the weekends and make a million bucks, right? Like that kind of that kind of old school book. And that book taught me uh, about deal making, right? About the idea of, you know, creating value in some sort of transaction. Um, in that case, that was a true real estate investing book, right? Like buy low, sell high, um, you know, buy, fix up and sell high you know, various, you know, themes, variations on a theme and real estate development ends up Charles is a, in fact, my, my running joke is, you know, real estate development is like the most extreme version of value add, right? <laughs> I take empty land and I build a brand new building, right? I don't, I don't, you know, paint carpet and cabinets, but it's the same uh, economic mechanism, right? Like you're taking something that's in this form and prove it and then, you know, land it in this, you know, higher value form. So that's sort of my story. Um, and I and I just like last point is I, I don't uh, in the last few years, I have stopped like uh, referring to myself as a real estate investor. I am purely a real estate developer and we invest in our own deals. So, I mean, we are an investor and I, you know, invest in other types of assets, but it really, you know, I finally go, oh, you know what, uh, being a real estate investor and being a real estate developer are like really two different things. There's overlap. Yeah. like skill sets of how to underwrite markets and how to create value in, in real estate assets. But in there's a core offer of real estate development that, you know, is dealing with building new buildings, designing, you know, from scratch, new unit types and projects, zoning politics that you don't, 
ever have to deal with uh, in investing. Fortunately, <laughs> for yeah. most people, that's the most complicated part of it. But yeah, I, uh, you know, we're 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 a real estate developer, you know, through and through, and I will really, you know, spend the rest of my career doing that. Yeah, it's funny that you say it because when we're buying a property, our probably checklist is a. I don't know, a few hundred, maybe a couple hundred points of what you have to do and <laughs> developing goes into the thousands, you know, yeah, probably. I mean? Yeah. It's, it's in fact, uh, I'm working right now with, uh, so, so I, we have like two or three interns that work for our company every year. They do about a year stint. Um, and one of the things we're working on now is actually creating a checklist mm. of all the steps in each phase. So you got, you know, land acquisition, you got, like design, you got, you know, the political process, entitlements, right? Um, financing, right? And at the end of the day, the idea is to have a comprehensive spreadsheet of, of you know, tabs and checklists that somebody uh, could utilize either internally, or we may offer it, you know, out into the public marketplace that you can go through and know all the steps of at least our type of real estate development. You know, if you were doing a different kind of real estate development or you were over in the UK or Sweden or, you know, wherever overseas, it would be different. But for American, you know, uh, multifamily development, this checklist would be, will be very comprehensive. So what were the first couple real estate uh, investments you did as being a developer? Were they developments as well? Uh, or were you yeah. buying and rehabbing? Yeah. So, uh, well, so just a bit of background. So I spent after I graduated from a school in California called Cal Poly uh, San Luis Obispo, got a finance degree there. And I actually went purposely into uh, like the professional real estate career domain for several years, a few years. And that was like, although I had the family background, I had the construction background, right? I knew how buildings went together, like intimately, because I'd worked, you know, for a you know, couple years, two or three years, like, you know, every day out on job sites. Um, I knew that I needed to get like a professional training and professional experience and background in real estate development, because one of the things about real estate development is even differentiated from investing is it's really very difficult even now still to go to a single source of knowledge and go, Hey, how can that, like, I want to be a real estate developer, teach me all I need to know and read a book or watch a series of videos. In fact, we're like working in the background. I have a, a personal brand website that we're actually developing a series of uh, eBooks and courses that would actually, the intention is to do that. Um, because, you know, having learned that like through the, the work environment, like I go, there is a way to teach it because it got taught to me and I teach it to other people like these interns, like that's one of the things we do. Um, but really, ultimately, in the end of the day, you're going to become a seasoned real estate development, either a corporate person or working entrepreneurial on your own by working in the industry. And my uh, fact, I'm going to issue an ebook here pretty quick, you know, building your career in the real estate development business. One of them is, you know, get an internship, find a mentor, you know, get the you know, right college degree, work in this professional environment early, right? And it's sort of a series of steps that you go through to ultimately end up like in a professional career where you can get training and learn on other people's dimes, right? Like yeah. I spent five, four or five years working for major corporations that did large scale real estate development. And I got like the crash course on uh, how to be a real estate developer and, and you know, like by design, not at risk, mm -hmm. right? And, and I don't like, there's no criticism of people who would start their real estate development career, like without having gone through that, you know, professional development cycle. 
but it's going to be costly either in time or energy or money or all three. Like, you know, your first deal won't work as good or maybe doesn't work at all. And then the second deal is a little bit better. Um, I would always encourage people if they have the capability to go work for others professionally, get that seasoning and that, you know, cause you have, you know, like you said, thousands of different things to track. Well, there's thousands of different things to learn mm -hmm. and they're all different. Every project has got its own unique idiosyncratic thing. Um, so anyways, the background is I did that for about five years. And then as I was getting at to near the end of that period of time, I knew like in my head, I go, I, I, yeah, I was already, you know, out the door to work for myself. Right. Mm -hmm. So I really just like almost like a side hustle. I started talking to people, putting deals together. And in that case, I, I actually, the first couple of deals I did were basically joint ventures with other developers. Even uh, my first career role was at a company called Kaufman and Broad Multi-Housing Group. Uh, Kaufman and Broad is a home building company. People now know as KB Home. This division built apartments corporately for mm -hmm. that, you know, for that company. Um, and I actually went back and did JVs with my old, you know, employer, uh, Mike Costa. Said, hey, I got a deal, Mike. Um, you know, I want to, I'm going to go out on my own. Let's work together. You know, I brought the deal. He brought the, you know, the capital and the and the resume, and we ended up doing uh, three or four deals together, and that was really what you know launched uh, what's now Urban Pacific uh, on our 21st year of operations. Interesting. So that's how you got started because usually. Uh, you have real estate investors that will start as a side hustle and do it part-time or something like this. And um, I feel that as we are talking about how many different steps, how does someone go? Is that the best route for some of the start being in development is to JV with people with the missing resources? I mean, is that the only way to do it? Uh, or do you just have to take the leap and go full-time into it? I think that I don't think there's a right or wrong answer, Charles. I mean, it's a great question. In fact, when I was, you know, look, looking at the questions that, that we had prepped for this morning, that was a great one because I don't think there is uh, like one interpretation of what's right of how to like do it. I, I, I focus on like what's going to be most effective for you, like what's going to be the shortest time to, for you to learn, least um, you know, like cost, right, of, of you know, loss or, or your you know, money and deals. Um, but also increasing probability of success. And so one of the things that I, I say, and like it's the saying I, I coined, which is complexity is the enemy of profits and real estate development. The more complex something is, the more likely you're going to erode or, or lower profits because, you know, complications or, you know, slow project down, unanticipated costs, you know, you make the wrong, you know, strategic decision on what product type you develop in the first place. So one of the ways, so then you go, what, what are the ways that I can lower risk and increase probability of success? And JV is one of them, right? You pair up with somebody who's seasoned and you go, hey, I got this great deal. Uh, I want to do, I think I want to do a real estate development, new construction apartment deal. You take it to a developer and they go, great, interesting site. Oh, dude, your design of apartments and your mix is all wrong, right? Like I'll give you an example. A guy brought me a deal uh, somewhere uh, back east. And uh, we'd start talking about it. And I go, well, what's your Unimix? He goes, oh, it's all two bedrooms. Like I go, the entire thing? He goes, yeah. I go, why'd you make that choice? Like I wasn't trying to be a jerk about it. And he goes, well, I did my research. I go, cool. And, and uh, what did you see? Oh, uh, the, the most units in the market were two bedroom. So I assume that was like the right product to build because if everybody else did it, I must want to do it too. And I actually said, that's the opposite <laughs> of what it is. You, you don't want to go there because that's where the predominance of your competition is. Like, look for the gap. 
where is there a part of the marketplace that's underserved that has demand and you can go into that marketplace and not compete as directly. So those are the kind of like subtle thinkings that you get from joint venturing, but you could do it other ways, Charles, you could JV, right? Which gives capacity and knowledge to your deal. You could get a mentor, right? Find somebody who's willing to, you know, coach you, um, whether it's, you know, a colleague, a friend, or even somebody you pay. Um, right. You can, you know, you can go be an intern for somebody else, right? Like I have people now, in fact, one of our interns, he has a professional, he's a professional project manager in real estate development. He works for a, uh, like a telecom company doing basically real estate development of cell phone towers. You know, mm -hmm. they require zoning and planning approvals and CDs and plan check, all that kind of thing. So he's going through the fundamental steps of the process. It just happens to not be his deal isn't income generating in the way that we think of apartments, right? Or multifamily, but he's basically spends probably two or three hours a week with us. Um, we do a weekly one hour call and my goal is basically to teach them how to do the different parts of development, like high level. Hey, here's your strategy. Here's your land act. Here's your design and politics, your entitlements. Here's your construction. Here's your lease up. Here's your value or sale, right? Mm -hmm. or, or hold. And so we'll go in and do practical things. So like one of the things we're working on right now is, you know, we'll, you know, some people from our land act team will bring us a deal. I found a deal. Even the interns have brought deals and we'll get on a Zoom call. And we'll, I'll, I record it like this is going to be, become part of our coursework and we'll go through the steps. Hey, look at the site, Google Earth, Google Street View. What do you see? You know, what's good? What's bad? You know, what, what do we think about this site generally? You know, what's our assessment of it? And then we'll go check the zoning, right? And we'll see the zoning standards. We'll apply that to our strategy, right? Our, our product type is a specific type of workforce housing called Urban Townhouse or UTH. And so we'll apply that like strategy from a, density dwelling units per acre, like how many units can we fit on the ground? And then we'll underwrite the deal. So like yesterday, we found a site, did the assessment of it, looked at the zoning parameters, and then put it in a pro forma. Ends up the deal didn't work, like, you know, badly so. <laughs> it was like not a good deal. But this is what you do. In fact, uh, as I told them yesterday, you're going to do nine out of 10 deals won't make it. Or let me say it differently. Nine out of 10 deals shouldn't make it. This is, and I say it that way because beginning developers and, and young project managers, I did it myself. Like there's no deal I couldn't do, Charles. Every deal uh, was, a, uh, I could make it work, right? I could solve all the complicated problems and the hair on the deal. Like I could make that work. Now I'm like, dude, I don't like any little hair on it, any little slope, any little issue with the land sellers, you know, zoning, uh, forget it, man, just move on. And we're just like clicking through lots and lots of deals. And again, that's one of those strategies to lower complexity, increase, you know, profitability. Interesting. So that was a really long answer. Did I answer your question? Let me check. Yeah, yeah sure. you did. I had a question here. I just want to go back uh, a minute or two. And you're talking about, so we're buying, say I'm buying a multifamily property and I want to verify what rents are currently, that they're accurate and where they could go. Very easy, right? I can do that within an hour with yeah. myself and one other person finding out uh, comparables and all this kind of stuff. Very easy. How do I do that? How do I know where the gap is? I obviously I can look at and see mm -hmm. what's being rented and what's not, mm -hmm. but you know, you don't know, do I look and see how long that's been on for or yeah. whatever? Yeah. How do you find the gap when you're Yeah, building? it's a great question. You know, I talked about this yesterday with somebody and, and I was sort of fleshing out and, and the, yeah, the gap is the first thing to look for. 
So you first, you know, you start really high level. You go, what's the total market? Like if I'm going to get, well, even back up a step, you go, hey, my strategy is to own income producing multifamily in Chattanooga, Chattanooga Tennessee. I'm just picking a, a city, right? Um, you go to that market and then you look at the totality of the marketplace. You want to look at what the rental stock is made up of, right? You know, how many big projects, how many little projects, how many, you know, studios, ones, twos, and threes, right? Get the sense of the mix. Um, and then you'll start to look at places that are like gentrifying or like places where development, like clearly is like, like the next step is to develop in this neighborhood because it's on the edge of, you know, XYZ neighborhood. Um, so you'll get a total assessment of the marketplace. And then, then you start to look for like gaps, so one of the ways I look for gaps is where is everybody predominantly? So that two bedroom example I gave you, it's like, you go, wow, Chad, and I don't, I'm making this up, but you know, let's say in this marketplace, there's a lot of, you know, 60% of the market is two bedroom units. You go, you know, you go, okay, that maybe there's a really high demand for two bedrooms or historically there's been a high demand for two bedrooms over the years that development took place and people made that decision to build that particular product type, right? That, that unit size and bedroom count. Um, but that's not necessarily where the market is now, right? So I look at that and then I'll look at what do you, you know, the renter profile for that market. Is it, is it skew young? Is it skew old? Are people moving into that market from other locations? Are they leaving that location, right? Like, you know, we, we've looked at investments um, I love, you know, the Rust Belt story, um, you know, units you can buy like incredibly cheap, but then I start looking at the population. I go, man, they're losing population every year. Yeah. It's not, it's, you know, depending on the market, like at one point we looked at like Columbus, Ohio, like it was an interesting market to me. And I just went and did some research one night and I just couldn't get comfortable with the story of like people leaving that market, like loss of population. That's yeah, like Detroit. At, However minor it might be, yeah, Detroit is probably the most like, you know, extreme version of that. But still, you know, now Detroit has the story of like this younger population coming in and gentrifying. So that's sort of interesting. So there's, so you look for those trends, right? And part of the way you're going to look for a gap is a trend that started here and it's going to go up here. And you want to like catch that travel in between the now and the then, right? Um one of the places like our UTH model is a workforce housing model. So I'll give you a specific example that we use. I have a background, my, my time at Kaufman Road multi-housing group, I did affordable housing. I did government subsidized tax credit financed apartment projects, new construction. Well, I knew from being in that domain, we used to at one point build a lot of four bedroom apartment units in these tax credit projects. And those were always in the Southern California markets where we did those. There was always like extreme amount of applications for those units, right? Like just way more yeah. oversubscription to those units than there was for say like a one or two bedroom. Still, you know, ones and twos were in high demand, don't get me wrong. But you could look at the numbers and you could see who those people were, their families. You know, interesting now, like, again, this is not anything I could have like arrived in LA and maybe necessarily made that assessment. So it's a combination yeah. of, your own knowledge plus your research. And then the third part of it would be talking to people. So what I would, the example I'd use, and you, you guys already do this, but same for development is let's say I just, you know, I, I Chattanooga is a market that I like. I would go talk to every investment sales broker who knows anything and everything about Chattanooga and go, what's selling well? Why is it selling well? What's selling poorly? Why? 
what are the valuations? Why is this one high, this one low? I mean, even in LA, uh, we're, we're about to sell two of our projects and uh, the values are coming in like really high, like like higher than I expected. Great, right? Good, good problem to have. But the broker and I were like, like, why is this happening? You know, rents are going up. Of course, there's like the, the surficial, like, you know, signals, right? Rents are going up in our per- product category, particularly. Um, but we were starting to just like to just talk about, you know, and assess why is this market the way it is? Why is the trend going up? What are the underpinnings of that trend? Is it a defensible trend? Like one of the things we're always thinking about is like, okay, I'm going to make this choice. Our UTH units are five bedroom, four bathroom, three story townhouse rental units with a two car garage. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a rental unit, but it lives like a house, at least like a townhouse, mm-hmm. like an attached unit. And we've recognized as a trend, even before the pandemic, for families particularly to, to who, who are forced to rent, but yet want a good life for their families, and, and even multi-generational families is where we focus, that there was a lack of product for those families. And that came, again, also from my background in, uh, in affordable housing. So it's not going to be one thing, and you weren't meaning that, but it's going to be several different things, your own knowledge, your own research. Uh, talking to people in the marketplace, talking to your colleagues, talking to brokers, uh, talking to lenders, talking to equity investors, Mm -hmm. you know, hey, you know, you know, CBRE Capital Markets Equity Group, like, you know, what do you, what do you guys like? You know, what are you interested in? What do you see new trends? And then, you know, I would also track uh, the, the, the ongoing real estate media. So something like Globe Street, um, you know, Forbes and Bloomberg sometimes write okay articles, but you know, like Globe Street and other co-star writes good stuff, right? Um, and really like get on everybody's email list, right? In fact, I would encourage people if they want to go to our website, urbanpacific.com and click the sign up button, we put out a Saturday e-blast. And what we do is we basically have a main article we'll, we'll write about a trend that we see. Hey, we're noting multi-gen families are growing. Work from home is a big growth people are leaving the city and going to suburbs, what's inside of that? Why is that happening? And how can you do something about it? Um, and then we'll have like three or four articles that sort of are just touch points, milestones in it. Oh, multi-gen family growth is, you know, high, uh, you know, more kids living at home, whatever, I'm making these up. But, you know, these are all real facts. Um, you know, we'll talk about economic forces, you know, we'll talk about trends, you know, lumbers up. So that's something that, you know, we, we talk about every once in a while. So it's going to be a several thing combination of all those things. And I, I, I don't want to make the answer really complicated, but what I think people do to finish the answer is don't rely on one specific data source or person or company or broker you really got to be doing research continuously. I mean, if anything I learned from the 2008, you know, recession was to really dig deep and, and, and like, you know, thoroughly into data sources and people vet them. And what I mean by vet them is, are they the, are they, how can I put this? Uh, You want to have people that are giving you economic, you know, uh, like, guidance and on the economy and trends that have no agenda. So if somebody's trying to sell a book, they're going to say whatever they need to say about the economy to sell the book, right? The gold guys are famous for this, right? The world's going to end tomorrow mm-hmm. by gold, right? And the world for those guys is always going to end. <laughs> you know, it could be t- 
two yeah. years ago. It could be two years from now. And I'm not picking on gold, guys. I think gold has a you know place in somebody's investment portfolio. Um, but it's also, you know, if you're trying to sell gold, you're going to say what you say. So we've got a, we've got a, like a small group of people that we follow that we trust and have seen them call trends correctly based on good empirical data and their own, you know, uh, assessment of the marketplace that they're, you know, I mean, they got websites and blog blogs that they're trying, you know, they got advertisements, they got to make a living too, but they're not, they have no agenda to steer you this way or that way. They're just reading yeah. the market sort of like agnostically, right? They don't have a particular leaning. They just tell you what the data tells them and then they make an assessment. Like one of them is called a, it's a blog called calculatedriskblog.com or just look up calculated risk blog. Um, uh, Bill McBride's a writer of that. I've been following that guy since like 2010, 2009. And he was he called the recession before 2008 in real estate. He's a real estate centric guy, housing centric guy. Um, and then he called the bottom in 2011. And then he basically called not exactly what happened in 2020, but he said, "Look, real estate's not going to be in a recession in the way that it happened in 2008." But he said, "There's going to what I think is some black swan event is going to take this economy out." Didn't ever like know anything about pandemic and coronavirus right we couldn't nobody could have known that um but that's exactly what happened you know it was like the the economy was booming um and then we had this crazy you know out of left field black swan event and that's it what ended up happening but his his assessments of the real estate market continue to be well grounded and then the last thing i love about him is he does great graphs of of trends in real estate permit issuance housing supply months of supply go on there and he's got tons and tons of graphs now he writes about other stuff besides housing don't get me wrong um, but he's not a he's not an ivory tower economist you know he's not a talking head on tv um he's just a, like a retired fortune 500 executive that happens to be making you know grounded assessments about the economy so those are the kind of people in that but even then you got to get several of those kind of guys and then start to put them together for yourself and then apply that to your own situation for what you want to do for your business. Nice. Well, that's a lot of great information. So Scott, what is your <laughs> super current... long answer? Sorry about that. <laughs> it's fine. What's your current, you talked about these, um, I don't know how you worded it. Townhouse, urban townhouse. Uh, urban townhouse. Project. Yeah. Is that your whole, is that your main development strategy now? And if you can go a little bit more into your development strategy and yeah. a little bit more into after they're developed, you know, where, what your exit strategy is for them. Are you yeah. renting them and then selling them? Are you selling them right away? You say you're selling two projects now. I imagine it's deal specific. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So urban townhouse, like, like I mentioned is a, a rental townhouse product townhouse being three stories where the one family lives in a three story townhouse, five bedrooms, four bathrooms, two car direct access garage in unit laundry, uh, one of the bedroom bathrooms is on the ground floor, helping it to make it multi-generational. And our whole purpose for building this product type, and it's really throughout Southern California, is to serve middle-income multi-generational families, right? Like we identified our gap in particularly in California is affordable housing. But even within the affordable housing domain, like that has a big spectrum of different, you know, types of people, the renters, the incomes, the demographics that they, that they, you know, that are, that they come from or, or that they are. Um, and so again, from this background, I knew that there was like this working class family that actually produces decent income, 
and too much income to qualify for the true government subsidized housing, but not necessarily enough to, to afford to buy a house or to rent the really high end, you know, the, the nice, you know, sexy downtown unit. Uh, plus those units and new construction apartment for the most part don't serve families. They're, they're studio and one bedroom units predominantly, at least in, in California in the urban areas. Um, you know, if you got a family of six, you know, there's nothing new for you. Well, you know, maybe a three bedroom out, you know, on the sort of peripheral areas. But if you're living like sort of in town in Southern California, the LA basin, there's really nothing new for you, uh, at least at at scale. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we identified this market. And so we're like, we're only doing that. Uh, I appreciate that question. We, We believe so thoroughly in that marketplace and the depth of it and the so lack of supply and high demand that we have gone basically fully 100% into that business plan so much so that I'll just I'll just you know offer like this is this is forthcoming but we're actually raising uh, a pretty significant equity fund to specifically and solely focus on these urban townhouse you know middle income rental housing projects it'll be a you know focusing on southern california but right now, I will I'll share with you the what what people call the build to rent market, um, and workforce housing are like the you know the, the hottest area of multifamily development that you could find for several reasons. One is this ongoing affordability uh, cycle that we're in, which is you know you've got income sort of doing this, they're stagnant, and housing prices doing this, depending on what market you're in. In California, it's this, and you know Texas is this. Yeah. But still, you got stagnant incomes and rising housing prices, right? And there's economic trends in a larger scale that have like make are producing that. But nonetheless, we have this gap, right? This space in here, that's exactly where our product lives. And that's a national issue, at least in urbanized metropolitan areas. Yeah. Um, so we did, we're, you know, like uh, I started about five years ago. Uh, we started in a small group of projects as an experiment. Because the reality is nobody's doing five bedroom, four bathroom rental product and certainly nothing at scale. And so we wanted to make sure that well, like we proved the model, like we could really rent it and build it and value it at what we needed to be profitable. Because our model is a private capital, right? Very standardized capital stack of equity, LP equity and, and debt like you would have in any market rate development. So there's no government subsidy. Uh, we don't income restrict per se, but we really do try to meet the middle income, you know, 80 to 120 income category, right? Like working class, think blue collar families, right? And these are, these are hardworking families, usually multiple earners in the household, right? You know, mom and dad and adult children and in-laws, they all work, they all pool their incomes and expenses in a, across the family group, mm-hmm. uh, a, a, a term I call economic sharing, Right, they're bringing their economic resources together and sharing their economic costs across the family group. Um, the rates of poverty for multi-generational families are exceptionally low compared to everybody else. And if you listen to the mainstream media, you've seen it. Oh, the average apartment, you know, in California, somebody needs to make you know fifty dollars an hour. And I'm making these numbers up; these aren't the real numbers, yeah. right? And that's true if you're an individual earner, right, living in the average apartment unit. Right. But it's, but there's, you know, it's interesting. There's no, um, there's no, how can I put this? Nobody's thinking about like other like structures that could facilitate people to live more affordably, like 
hey, maybe you get together with roommates. I mean, that's roommates are a classic, like, like I didn't make that up. I mean, yeah. we've, we've all done roommate situations and that was a version of economic sharing. Co-living, right? You've heard of that term. That's economic sharing. Our UTH model of families, you know, and, and we're not talking two families that are related coming together. These are related families, grandparents, in-laws, parents, adult kids, younger kids, um, and, and most of the you know, cultures that we find that are predominant in California, Hispanic families, Asian families, Indian families, they all live you know, multi-generationally, like naturally. In fact, if you look at the United States, we're the anomaly and we're shifting away from that. We're the nuclear family where mom and dad and two and a half kids and, 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 you know, and Bowser the dog live in a suburban environment. Like that's anathema to the world right? And as far as cultures and also just economic reality, right? I mean, the idea of kids living at home longer is becoming more common. In fact, uh, there was a statistic that Pew Research put out a couple of years ago. We're at the highest rate of multi-generational living in something like 160 years. So they did a, a research and they went back and, you know, multi-generational living way back when was high, right? Families lived together to share economically. It dropped through the 50s, 60s, 70s to its low. And then we're actually ticking up really nicely. And I don't necessarily say that I'm like the economic trends that are having people have to make these decisions to do that, right? I would go, look, if everybody could live in their own unit and, and afford it, fine. But reality is that. It is economic reality. You, you can try to fight it all you want. Um, and so what we're doing is we're providing a housing unit, a housing type that, that serves that reality, right? And in fact, it uh, helps those families when they do live multi-generational and they do economic share, their rates of proper poverty are exceptionally low. And really it's off the radar, really the government's, you know, just sort of thinking about like, how can we solve poverty? Let's, let's push money at it. That works sort of marginally. Um, diminishing returns. Yeah. What we really need is, is innovation. And that's what UTH is an innovation that we created to meet the, those needs and those demand characteristics in the market, meet that gap in a unique way where we can basically use private capital to fund this workforce housing model. Nice. Okay. Uh, so with, with when you're doing development, how do you mitigate risk as a developer when you're, say, there's a pullback in the economy? And uh, so everything's going well and you find yourself a project's half done or it's going to be completed. And, uh, and now you find yourself in recession. Like how does, yeah. how do you mitigate risk? Yeah. Well, a couple, a few different things. And actually I'll, I'll use this to answer part of the question that you asked before, whether we were a long-term hold or short-term oriented. And we're actually generally long-term hold oriented. And that's actually one of the defense mechanisms about the, a, you know, to to resolve or help, uh, you know, like deal with a recession, right? If you're long-term oriented and you're hold on apartments and you've underwritten them, you know, decently and conservatively and didn't, you know, try to go into the market where everybody else is and there's a lot of other units and a lot of other developers. Um, so, you know, we sell projects strategically, right? Um, so when you have a long-term hold orientation, Right. So I'll give you an example that's specific to us. So about three years ago, it's a five-year-old program, about two to two and a half years into it, like because I had learned these lessons in the 2008 recession and I was paying attention to these economic 
you know, prognosticators and looking for the economic signals, what I teach people and, and internally and what I share with people is like, look, the signals for recession will be there. They are there. It's just that people miss them or they, there's a lot of noise in the background, the media and, you know, just a cack whatever you know it's like a lot of background noise but the signals are there if you if you know how to sort of filter it out so i'll give you an example in 2005 or 2006 in forbes magazine tom barrick who runs a company called colony capital he's like one of the most famous real estate you know hedge fund managers fund managers across the united states on the cover of forbes he's like i'm getting out like basically getting out of real estate like he's selling everything and that was one of the signals. And there was like a bunch of others. In fact, I keep a book on my desk where I clipped articles of all the signals that were there that I missed personally, right? Maybe I saw the article. Um, uh, sometimes there are examples of like ridiculous things. So the Wall Street Journal in 2005, 2006 had a graph of housing price since 1930 and it went straight up, not straight up, but you know, up at a 45 degree yeah. angle from 1930 through 2006 and housing never had a down year. Uh, you know, it's the Wall Street Journal, so it must be right. You know, you think to yourself, not true, not true at all. And we were in the mat, like the bubble of bubbles and <laughs> housing, yeah. right? So you have to pay attention to the signals, right? Because they're there and you have to look at lots of signals and you have to vet those, again, vetting the people and make sure that there's like, it's real research. It's really grounded. It's not Paul Krugman, you know, saying the world's going to end or, you know, whatever, pick your person who has like their own agenda that they would like to put forth. And then you have to underwrite your deals in a way and, and manage and structure your deals in a way that lessens the exposure you have as much as possible to the market. Now, of course, it's this is a risk oriented business, real estate investment and development. So you can never reduce risk entirely. In fact, you know, arguably, if you were able to do that, then, you know, the profit you would generate in a deal should be zero, right? If there's no risk, there should be no profit. But the idea is to create the risk position while mitigating it in many ways as you can. So let me give you examples of that. You know, for us, two and a half years ago, we converted everything to a long-term hold because two and a half years ago, we started to see early signals, right? You know, guys like, you know, uh, Bill McBride, who I spoke about, sort of saying, yeah, it's, everything's looking okay. We don't think the next recession will be real estate oriented, but we think a recession is coming, right? Because a recession will always come. A peak will always come, a trough will always come, and then another peak, another trough, right? That's fundamental, right? The economic cycle is always there. It's just the timing between cycles and troughs and peaks will, will differentiate. But if you're in an orientation of like, not in a bad mood, but you know, like sophisticated real estate investors are alert. Like, man, when a recession comes, I'm looking forward to that, right? Because mm -hmm. I can buy discounted properties. Yeah, yeah, right. And you know, not to be like grave dancer, you know, want people to be hurt. I, I'm I'm not that kind of guy, and you aren't either, probably. Um, but to basically be vigilant is the terminology I use. Um, to go look, it's coming. I know it's out there. I don't know what it will look like. And of course, what I in fact what I say is it will be different this time than it was yeah, last time. That's for sure. Right. It won't be mortgage and it won't be single family and CDOs and all that kind of craziness, but it'll be something else. So that's like when Bill McBride mm -hmm. wrote, he goes, look, the next recession won't be led by real estate. In fact, his, his philosophy is that housing leads our economy in and out of recession normally. So if you're in a normal cycle, right, then housing would turn down 
and then the economy would go down and then housing would come back up and the economy would go back up. Like that was sort of the classic cycle, if you can call any cycle classic. And, and but he said, this time it's going to be different because in 2008, real estate got hammered so badly. I mean, even in 2013, 2014, 2015, I think we're still in recovery. I mean, we might even argue we're still in recovery now because, you know, the mortgage market's still relatively disciplined, right? That's a yeah. carryover from 2008 because mm-hmm. people got burned so badly, both borrowers, but owners of houses, but also the lenders, mm-hmm. right? I'm seeing like in, you know, since 2016 through now, like I've seen equity and debt like that we work with on our multifamily projects actually be relatively disciplined, right? In 2016, there's a period of time at the end of the year where the lenders and several equity investors that we knew go, yeah, we think there's a little bit too much supply in the LA market. We're going to, we're going to back off a little bit. And then that went on for a few months and then, you know, things sort of worked their way out and units absorbed and, you know, it's like a steady pipeline so you can trust it again. Um, okay. So what else? So the other thing is to um, not underwrite your deal so aggressively that you can't take like a downward, you know, change in rents as an example. So the classic yeah. one I, I use again, yeah. back to this younger deal maker, younger project manager, newbie in the business, you know, they, the, the logic is sort of like this, well, the market for two bedroom is 900. Uh, I'm going to build a new building so I can get a little bit of a premium because the brokers told me that's true. So I'm going to go, I think I can get 1100, right? Without necessarily researching the market, maybe 1100 does exist. Maybe that does, mm-hmm. is possible in the market, but then you go, but what if the market turns it downwards? Can I still get 1100? Um, if the market turns down and I have units that are 1100 and 15 other developers all have units 1100, well, somebody's going to lower their rent. They got yeah. it. They got it because yeah. if they're going to fill up their units, so maybe I better not be at 1100. Maybe I better be at a thousand. Maybe I better be at 900. You go, well, what's yeah. the logic if the market's 900, you're at 900. Well, if you can't make your deal work, then that's true. But if you can make your deal work, mm-hmm. if your model, your land price, your construction costs, your mix of units has you, you know, still be at market or slightly above market and still make money then if the market turns against you, you've got a cushion, you've got a defensible, right? A cushion. Uh, let's see. Um, one of the ones that we use, one of the reasons we love this, this, this working family marketplace is that in a recession, they're very sticky. That's the terminology I created, which basically means that they don't like, they don't, they're not mobile. They have roots in the community, what I call strong social networks. So their kids are in school, their churches down the road, their extended families around, maybe they're from that location historically, that's where they grew up, their job is close by. So those are all logic for them to stick around and figure out how to manage through the recession, you know, get an extra job. Um, hey, you know, like you got to go to work that again, this economic sharing model is really the key mm-hmm. core, you know, defensive mechanism against that. And we've even seen that. I mean, we, we in the pandemic, uh, our last two projects, our Fullerton project on Montebello, those are the cities that they're in. Um, Montebello is actually finished leasing now. We've had the best leasing velocity that I've had in any project in my entire career. And, and at, at rents that are two to 500 a month over pro forma, right? Which, you know, I think just oh, is wow. a testament to our conservative underwriting, but also just the viability of the product. Now, some of this acceleration just came from the pandemic and the work from home, which we couldn't have known about. But we knew 
our unit right. was a space when people move out of the studio because they can't afford it anymore. Where do they go? They move home with parents or family. They get roommates. They do some recombination to become defensively, economically defensive, right? To share, to cost share, to economic share, mm -hmm. right? Families do that. Roommates do that. Right. You know, whoever, like that happens in a recessionary environment. So that was a... That was like an anti, there's a book called Anti-Fragile uh, written by a guy named Nassim Tlaib. And his his theory is that like in business and in uh, like offers like the, you know, uh, real estate projects, investments and that kind of thing, you would like to design it in a way that's anti-fragile. That means basically it benefits from harm. So it's a it's a interesting concept, but the way to think of it is, like anybody who's ever lifted weights, you know, you lift weights, right? And you basically actually damage the muscle. It hurts for a while and then it grows, right? That's, I can't, you know, it's hypertrophy or how, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. So you harm the muscle and then it benefits and grows from it. So that's the, you know, physical biological example I use. Our product UTH is anti-fragile because when the economic recession came, people combined together in exactly the way that we already anticipated that they would. And they actually saw, we'd already been seeing that, and then that basically accelerates. Like we became a place of refuge, right? Somebody wants to move out of downtown LA or move out of San Francisco, whatever big city they're in, they're going to move into these urbanized suburbs and then they're going to want an economic share to try to like, you know, extend their yeah. incomes that they are producing as far as they can, right? And they do that by by sharing. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I just, uh, as we're finishing up here, I have a couple of questions or well, really main question is, what are your main challenges you are finding today as being a developer? I mean, I imagine material costs are a huge, huge portion of that. But yeah. what other uh, issues are you finding? Yeah, actually, material costs. You're you're right on the money. I mean, lumber is like insane. Mm -hmm. uh, it was oh pre-pandemic like three hundred per thousand board feet. Uh, I looked at it yesterday. It's fifteen seventy-eight or something. I mean, it's the graph has gone straight up. Um, you know, it's got to return to the mean at some point. And I don't think that's normal inflation. This is supply chain disruption, you know, uh, lumber mill shut down, uh, trucking is restricted. Um, you know, there's various, you know, is anything, any of these economic trends, there's usually several interrelated, uh, like a web of, of yeah. you know, things that influence that. In fact, there's a guy I would recommend people, you know, if they're interested in that uh, on YouTube, there's a guy called the Uneducated Economist. Um, he's an interesting dude. He works in the lumber business. He's like a lumber sales guy. And, but he's got some interesting, just very, again, very pragmatic thinker, right? Not a trained economist, just observing his part of the world, talking to people that are in the lumber industry, he's starting to get some, some traction in the, uh, in the uh, online domain, right? Uh, so he's interviewing with actually some fairly high level economists now. I mean, he's great. And he's just talking about like what he's seeing and what he's hearing from people about why is lumber, like why is lumber so high? What's the, what's the issue with it? Why is it happening? Can it continue? Um, so that's definitely somebody who, you know, if they're looking at, at, he's particular to lumber, but a lot of commodities, copper, steel, uh, oil, right? Obviously oil came off yeah. of it, you know, historical low at whatever negative 34 barrel it was, you know, uh, back in the recent past. So we are having projects now that we're having to re-underwrite the hard costs um, underwriting. So for 
probably two or three years, we built at 135 bucks a foot. That's net leasable hard costs. So just the cost to build the building mm -hmm. and do the grading and get it ready. Like, but that's all in hard costs. And we jumped up about a good 30 bucks a foot in the span of about a year from when we finished one project, we had a little gap really it was like the 2020 year when the pandemic hit, we basically, we had some projects that we were finishing up. So you don't do anything, you know, you don't change anything. You finish the project, right? You got to get it ready at lease. And then we started to just for about a three month period, just, you know, the world was going crazy. So we just started to reassess like what, what will this new environment look like? How will it affect our product? What do we do about it? because I was definitely in the mood of vigilance. And then that turned out to be, you know, like a, a worthy, uh, valuable uh, stance to, to be thinking about it. And then the, and then their massive disruption. Right. And so the way that we approach is we go, look, you know, one, because we'd gone to a long-term orientation, we weren't like an immediate need. Oh my God, you know, the world's imploding. I got to sell a project, right? The worst possible time, right? The world's imploding and you got to sell a project. And we saw a lot of that in 2008. We weren't going to be in that. So two and a half years earlier, right? We saw the signals and we went to long-term hold. So I had ownership of properties that were finishing that I was going to have several years beyond um, to finish and lease up and hold. Um, I didn't know how the pandemic was going to affect our product, but I speculated from our research that we would be be benefited by people combining right in bigger units it turned out to be that coronavirus people wanted bigger units they wanted to be like outside the city center and like urbanized suburbs they wanted to combine together in roommates that could work from home mm. i mean i have units of yeah. people that are entirely professional working people that were friends in college or roommates in college that came together in our unit and they were from like Oregon and Seattle and San Diego, and they all came together in our unit and they all worked from home. In fact, we have one unit where it's three people running the unit and they use the other two bedrooms as their office, their home offices, right? Wow. So that yeah. was, we're very, you know, very grateful that that happened, but the design of the product was sort of anticipating disruption and recession and this recombining idea. We were thinking it would be families, right? Kids yeah. moving home but it happened to be also uh, work from home roommates. Interesting. So yeah, so commodities are they, you know, on the, on the, I think inflation generally is just like on the horizon. And I know people have different opinions about it. And I listen to several different, you know, again, I have these, these data sources of people that I li listen to and there's varying opinions on inflation, but clearly the amount of stimulus money that's gone into the economy is, you know, the most massive that it's ever been in the history of the United yeah. States. That's going to have some effect. We don't know what the effect will be, but we look for what that effect is, or like we look for the signals of the effect, right? We could anticipate in inflation. You know, the US dollar is still the world's reserve currency, which is a deflationary, right? We're shipping dollars uh, offshore, even though we're printing them there, that's a deflationary thing. Um, but I think we're starting to see it, you know, uh, food, gasoline, you know, I don't know about you where, where you are, yeah. but. You know, I mean, we've been seeing inflation of food. I have a family of five, I have three kids and my wife and I, um, we've been noticing it. Gasoline, you know, it's gone back up. Um, so I think we're in that world. Uh, certainly wages are starting to inflate, mm -hmm. which is like, like a little unusual. Like we haven't seen wage inflation, like that's more rare. But, you know, so many people are out of the workforce that, 
if you have a, a business, a restaurant or a retail establishment, you're trying to hire people. I'm seeing it all over the place that you probably are too. Yeah. People can't hire enough people, right? Mm -hmm. I have a, a, a family office that we advise. So we have a real estate advisory uh, team that's part of our company, separate from the real estate development. And this is a restaurant corporation, mm -hmm. you know, probably one of the biggest in the United States. And they cannot hire enough people to save their lives. I mean, they're yeah. starting to look at increasing wages to, to compete, but even still, even with, you know, increases in, you know, their offers of wages, it's still hard to get people to come. So yeah. we haven't seen that show up. We, we got good construction, good, good sub base, um, loyal. Uh, we give them, you know, we always working with them on new deals. So we get them to come back time and time again. So we built those networks over, you know, several years. Um, but the, the construction labor market doesn't seem to have disrupted, at least that I noticed. So okay. we're fortunate there. Um, but material is going to be an interesting thing to watch over the next, you know, probably two to three years. What does that do? Mm -hmm. Although I got to say lumber's got to come down, man. Yeah. It's at 1500. It's like whatever, five, six, seven X. <laughs> it's insane. I mean, it's so far off the mean, like the mean of lumber went along this for forever and ever that whoop, mm -hmm. right up here. So it's got to, it's got to come back at some point. Interesting. Well, uh, I want to thank you so much for coming on. And uh, how can our listeners learn more about you and your business? Yeah, so I would encourage people to go to our website, www.urbanpacific.com. Um, take a look at our investor education section. We have like numerous videos, podcasts, articles, uh, uh, eBooks. Um, you know, if people want to uh, go and uh, probably this will come out in the next few weeks. Uh, our my personal website, www.scottchoppin.com, will be available and some of the uh you know real estate development learning will be there but i would encourage people to sign up on the urban civic site for the e-blast it's the sign up button that's on every page okay. and get on that email list for saturdays because that's a good source of info i mean this is guys all the stuff that we're reading i just like put it together you know i i you know i sort of edit out like you know a lot of the stuff that's not relevant but every you know every saturday you're going to get a you know, a, uh, you know, sort of good, you know, group of articles that are reflective of, you know, the information that we're seeing in the last, you know, two or three weeks as, as we're reading through everything that we're reading through. Okay. Well, sounds great. I will put those links into the show notes and I want to thank you so much for coming on today, Scott. Thanks, Charles. Great to be here. Hi guys, it's Charles from the Global Investors Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in getting involved with real estate, but you don't know where to begin, set up a free 30-minute strategy call with me at ScheduleCharles.com. That's ScheduleCharles.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Global Investor Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new weekly episodes. For more resources and to receive our newsletter, please visit globalinvestorpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Syndication Superstars, LLC, exclusively.